0: Shrinkwrap Radio number 796. Mike Rucker, Ph.D., on how the disciplined pursuit of joy and wonder can change your life. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio.
1: You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. rap Radio, all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave.
0: Has your life grown stale? Do you miss the fun of your younger years? My guest today is Michael Rucker, author of the forthcoming 2023 book, The Fun Habit, How the Disciplined Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. He's also an organizational psychologist, behavioral scientist, and charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Mike Rucker, welcome to Shrink Wrap Radio.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I'm really glad to have you here. And hopefully, we will have some fun uh, talking Indeed. about your forthcoming 2023 book, The Fun Habit. That's a great title how the mm-hmm. discipline, pursuit of joy, and wonder can change your life. And I think you're the first person I've interviewed where the book is going to be in 2023. <laughs> so we're really uh, taking a jump into the future here. Maybe you can tell us a bit about your background.
2: Yeah. So um, I'm an organizational psychologist by academic trade. Okay. Um, I got into um, performance psychology through a mentor of mine. His name's Dr. Michael Gervais. He's made a bit of a name for himself lately because he was um, the sports psychologist for the uh, Seattle Seahawks. But um, like most things of serendipity, we were introduced really early on, and so he became a mentor during a time where I was uh, had just gotten off an entrepreneurial um, endeavor that didn't go so well. So you know, I was looking for guidance, and uh-huh. uh, he really got me into um, the concepts around. Um, Peak performance. So, um, folks like Charles Garfield out of uh, Berkeley, yeah, yeah, and but at the same time, um, uh, there was this uh, you know uh, big movement with positive psychology, and so you know, "cheek sent me high" had been around for quite some time, but most people's introduction to flow was quite academic. And then obviously Segelman came in with authentic happiness and kind of commercialized it. Um, and really I really latched, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I latched onto that. And so I became part of that com- early community and fortunately that um, uh, provided me an invitation to become a charter member of the international positive psychology. Yeah, Association. I was
0: struck by that because uh, I was at the APA conference where uh, he was president and he announced his uh, creation or invention or something of positive psychology. As somebody with a humanistic psychology background, we were a little nonplussed at uh, his not even mentioning the the forebearer of humanistic psychology, which I think a a case could definitely be made for that. It's
2: an evolution for sure. So every year you go, it's an interesting sway You know, the first year was certainly academic. And then the next year, um, you know, a lot of folks from academia had kind of left with the exception of, you know, young researchers that were trying to present their posters. And it was a a lot of coaches, you know, which was this. um, And but I think that underpinning, um, you know, obviously, you know, Ed, who's not with us any longer and and Barbara Fredrickson, you know, the those big ideas that have come forth through there. Um, it's nice that they've had that vehicle. Um, you know, at the same time, it's interesting because you're, I, I don't want to make your point for you, but there was a commercialization of those ideas that I think um, had to be tempered. Right. And certainly I talk about it to some degree in the book. Um, you know, the, the one I probably highlight the most, um, you know, is this idea that, gratitude is certainly a useful tool we know that from clinical psychology it's been well researched yet that idea as a prescription was grabbed a hold by you know lay coaches and really overprescribed and you know onel uh-huh. lubomirski at a uc riverside you know did some interesting research that you know you tell folks that might have a predisposition to depression to f- you know, that, to insist that they find something to be grateful for three times a day is actually counterproductive, right? And so um, I think that's where, uh, you know, it, it's great that we're a big tent and more inclusive. Yeah. At the same time, you need to be really careful about, um, you know, enabling uh, the practitioner of ideas when folks haven't had, uh, you know, proper training, so. Yeah,
0: you know, I was shocked, actually, when he created his coaching course uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, where I was an undergraduate a lot earlier than that. Uh, but that clearly was kind of an entrepreneurial thing on his part to do that. It just surprised me because he was so much an academic, you know, really well known for his earlier work that was about things like learned helplessness and other things. So so that was a little surprising. Um, but I think one of the things I like about uh, the Humanistic Psychology Association is the mix of academic and practitioner. Uh, I think that's always uh, kind of refreshing, but the balance can get skewed too far one way or the other for sure. Um, where did you do your undergraduate work?
2: Um, my undergrad was at Chico State. So um, ah, you're a local
0: uh, guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You were. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then I did my doctoral work at uh, Alliance.
0: Okay. Okay. We just uh,
2: got a, a member, one of our faculty just became a board member of the APA, I believe. I oh, really? Him. That's uh, a
0: feather in the cap of a right, yeah. Yeah. little guy. <laughs> yeah, right. And um, what, what, what was what uh, was maybe the most uh, the most formative experience coming up?
2: So that's yeah, yeah we kind of um, so the narrative for me and what started the book was I was a big believer in these practices. I um, probably over quantified my life. So there when I was living in the Bay Area, I was also, a part of the Quantified Self Tribe, um, a gentleman by the name of Gary Wolf, who's involved with Wired Magazine. Um, And, you know, it's a national movement, but there was a big concentration of us um, in the Bay Area. And so not only was I using the principles of positive psychology to really try and be as happy as possible, I was logging like my good days and looking for correlations and um, and things were working out fairly well, but I was climbing pretty high on the peak, right? Of this, and um, 2016, right around when I was finishing my dissertation, um, I had a trifecta of really bad things happen. Um, my younger brother passed away, um, oh, at, uh, yeah, from a pulmonary embolism, so you know nothing really could be done. It was just um, bad luck. Um, I was an endurance athlete and found out quite suddenly um, around that same time that my femoral head was sitting on my pelvis, there just was no more cartilage and that I wouldn't be able to run competitively again. Um, And this wasn't necessarily bad, but more disruptive. Um, My wife got an amazing offer um, uh, to work where where she works now in, in North Carolina so that uprooted us from, you know, our support group in California Mm -hmm. and we're now in North Carolina. So there was a lot of disruption and obviously a lot of strife. And I, because I had identified with, you know, happiness as this value that was important to me for so long, I was trying to hold on to it during that period. And um, it led to some interesting things, primarily being less happy uh, and so, you know, being the researcher, I think you probably recall, like w- when you just get done with your dissertation, you're so hungry for more PubMed articles and, you know, like you yes. still have this, this hunger for research. I started to dig into, um, you know, some ideas that I was playing with at the time. And I was introduced uh, to a researcher out of the University of, of California, Berkeley, uh, Dr. Iris Mouse, um, who research was just emerging at the time that especially in the Western world, folks that are overly concerned with happiness, so not necessarily value happiness, but are concerned about their own happiness like I was, tend to make themselves less happy. And, you know, toxic positivity wasn't really a buzzword yet. It certainly is now. Um, But at the time I realized, you know, this this sort of movement to always be happy and to, if you're not happy, something's wrong. Um, There was... There was sort of an under, uh, an ugly underbelly of it as right. it were, and, and so, it's kind
0: of part of our national character, I think, in a way. That's how we're seen in other parts of the world as as sort of uh, pathologically up, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, so it come There's a way in which it comes easy to us.
2: Well, and combined with, and we're kind of getting into deeper topics here, but. Um, and one that I don't cover um, in the book just because it is more esoteric is especially in the Western world, we value high arousal fun, right? Where, um, you know, if, so my definition of fun just for, um, you know, the context of research is anything on the positive side of valence, right? Anything that we um, perceive, you know, in real time as pleasurable um, tends to be fun, right? Because if not, you know, if we're in negative valence, it's discomfort and we tend to want to escape or cope from it, right? Yeah. And yeah. so another thing about the Western world is if you see someone reading a book or meditating or, you know, generally in a pleasant state, we mislabel that as not fun or potentially boring because we're fed so often, you know, the Instagram influencer that's jumping on a beach with a big old smile and, you know, techno oh, yeah. music in the background. Right. And so yeah. there's this sort of interesting dissidence about, um, you know, if I'm not part of that particular tribe, then I'd, then maybe there's something wrong, which is so unfortunate. You know, we're to your point. You see other cultures that, um, you know, where uh, you just know that there are other ways to um, enjoy pleasure, and they tend to it, it t- tends to be more sustainable. You
0: know? Yeah, yeah. You make a good point in the book that that the pursuit of happiness. Um, uh, is a a false pursuit, and that happiness is a happy byproduct of other things that you focus on in your life. And um, and if if you're lucky enough to have some really good things to focus on, (laughs) some really consuming things to focus on, or some things that you really value highly, then happiness will be a kind of a natural byproduct rather than going after happiness.
2: Yeah. And, you know, whether you want to call it reframing or, um, you know, you're, you know, anyone can sort of reframe it the way they want. But I think one of the things that um, that becomes difficult, especially as we get older, is that idea that we do have a degree of autonomy and agency about what we do. And so um, whether you want to call it hedonic or not, if you are in a place where you don't feel like you're getting the amount of joy and delight that you want, you do have the ability to sort of change course. It might not necessarily be something drastic or revolutionary, but you certainly can find generally two to three hours in your week where if you're like, you're spending that time wondering why you're not happy or not having fun. Um, if you really think about it, you do have the agency to make decisions within those moments to to change your outcome. And sometimes it's just those little wins that can start to build on themselves. You know, yeah. challenging heuristics or um, you know, uh, sort of social norms. Right? Like a common example I use is a lot of adults don't feel like they can go out on a weekday night because there's sort of this weird understanding that that's a quote unquote school night. Like, what does that mean? You know? (laughs) And so like, yes, you can go and take dance classes on a Wednesday. Um, And oftentimes folks will feel like, well, but I'll be so tired on a Thursday. And, um, you know, a, a majority of folks will find that that type of invigorating activity, as long as it doesn't uh, encroach on sleep, because there's certain things as humans we need, right? We need good nutrition, we need to be able to sleep seven to eight hours. So I'm not suggesting you go to a rave till four in the morning. But you know a lot of people won't do things during the weekdays, because they've just been taught that fun is reserved for the weekends. And so, you know, that's just one of many things that you can sort of challenge if you find that, you know, in any given week, you're not having enough fun. Yeah,
0: you know, among the uh, the various things that you are, you're also an entrepreneur. Uh, uh, you've been uh, a behavioral scientist and, um, as you say, uh, organizational psychologist, but you're also an entrepreneur.
2: Yeah, I mean- Is that fun
0: for you or what?
2: <laughs> well, now I'm more of an intrapreneur. Um, I actually work for a California company. We, uh, But I think, you know, um, I like- Having agency and autonomy, so the ability to sort of invent, um, you know, hypothesis and test them, you know, uh, you know, whether that's building products or, you know, what we call product market fit, Um, and then applying the ideas of behavioral science. So, uh, you know, really looking at the user experience and trying to increase the joy that somebody would get from either an experience or a product. I really do find that fun, Um, especially if it's done with this, you know, a component of empathy and benevolence where at the end of the day, um, you know, using this word very broadly, if you're trying to increase value in the sense of enriching somebody's life, then you're also creating value for yourself instead of just, you know, trying to make money.
0: Well, I kind of looked at it that way, too, in my own foray into the entrepreneurial world or the world of business for years. I was, while being a professor, I also was part-time uh, working in market research and and running focus groups. And one of the ways I justified that to myself was to say, well, we're, my clients are trying to uh improve their products, improve the experience that they offer. And it's a pretty democratic process to say, well, let's listen to people and see, you know, uh, what they like, what they don't like. So I always felt pretty good about that. But the other place I, I wanted to say is, so doing that kind of work, uh, I had to travel periodically and, um, and people, who travel a lot complain about all oh, the airports and the long rides and all of that. And uh, the grind of it. And, uh, I think I just kind of intuitively, or it's in my nature. I went to comedy clubs, uh, great. whenever I went to another uh, city, I went to a comedy club and laughed a lot. And, uh, so I hadn't read your book, but <laughs> I think it's right on target for your book.
2: Yeah. I don't know. Um, I, I don't want to give too much away, but, uh, so you'll find out at the end of the book, why I know you had disclosed, you haven't made it quite to the end of the book, but um, each chapter is opened up by a quote for, from a comedian. And there's yeah. a reason for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, comedy is just, you know, I, I, there is so much to laughter. You know, I, I cite some research by John Cleese in there and um, I just think it's democratizing, right. you, uh, we're kind of riffing right now. Right. But I just, I do love the energy of a comedy club because it doesn't matter, um, what walk of life you are. There doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, you, everyone there is there for one reason and that's the laugh and laughter is so restorative. I meant, uh, I know, I believe, uh, you know, you know that I listened to Sarah's podcast, uh, you know, when you had Sarah on, um, uh, it's just restorative. Like when, when we have that sort of collective effervescence of, of laughing and having fun together, um, we just know that it's a restorative practice. So, that's yeah,
0: great. well, th- th- that leads into one of the, the chapters on in, in your book, which is about uh, health. And um, so, so talk to us about the correlation between uh, fun and health.
2: Yeah, so uh, I borrow heavily from, I brought her up before Barbara Fredrickson, but we know through broaden build theory, right, that um, if you are using these tools to be able to take back the time um, uh, and start to integrate more pleasurable experiences so that you're indexing uh, more memories of of joyful times, one you're building a lot of resilience because um, you're able to savor those memories so when you're in sort of darker moments you can um, pull those out of the you know sort of fun bank and realize that life isn't as bad and that you can sort of flip the script back on um, your ability to create those moments that you have Uh, a lot more, uh, again, agency and autonomy than you think. So instead of having a fixed mindset of like, okay, well, this is sort of just what life is doing to me. um, You're able to develop more of a growth mindset um, in that sense. And we know when people have these more fulfilling lives, all sorts of um, natural things happen, right? Like lower blood pressure, um, especially if you're more active, um, all sorts of key biomarkers go back up again through Barbara's work. We know that, uh, yeah, psychological resilience. So you have a prophylactic for mental, you know, low grade mental health. Obviously, um, one thing that I'm always, you know, in these types of podcasts, like if you have a biological predisposition to depression, I'm certainly not saying that fun will fix you. Um, you know, you need to do, um, what you need to do to sort of, you know, get back onto cancer if it's a biological problem. But if it is a psychological, you know, mild psychological disposition, um, you know, it, it's basically a subgenre of CBT, right? Because you now, you can reframe those problems of like, oh, this is going to be a moment of despair and reframe it with, um, I have the agency to go and, and do something that I like. And so an example, um, we've talked about my brother's death. You know, again, I was identifying of like, you know, sort of wallowing in that despair. And it's because I was trying to somehow change that the happenstance of objective reality. Um, And instead, I realized that I could still experience these moments of, of joy and delight by engaging in activity with friends that really opened up their hearts to me and wanted to take me, you know, into activities that would be fun and not necessarily have to identify as being happy. And so you know, allowing myself to be invited into those moments and enjoy good times with my friends without having to necessarily have the burden of, okay, so when is this gonna make me happy again? um, Freed up two things, right? One, it made me realize that eventually I'm gonna get back to a place where this is gonna be abundant in my life because that's appropriate. And then it also provided the space to be, you know, it's okay that I'm not happy in this moment, because mourning, you know, the loss of someone is is an okay emotion, you know, during this time. And so, um,
0: yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, um, one thing we should mention is that, you, you know, one of the standard questions is what led you to write this book? Well, in part, what led you to write the book was that the pandemic was going on and it put a major crimp in uh, your life (laughs) as it did certainly in mine and for many other people. And so it's kind of seems paradoxical in a way that you start to write a book about fun.
2: Yeah, it was uh, interesting because the proposal I got picked up before the pandemic. And so, you know, I had um, the opportunity to you know coalesce all of the science that a- ends up being in the book and then having to road test it during the pandemic. And um, yeah, you know, I confess in the book, there were certain times where I definitely felt a bit of imposter syndrome because um, you know, at the root, uh, you know, the underpinnings of a lot of the science that I bring forth also come from uh, social uh, determinant theory, right? And so this idea, of competency and relatedness and, um, and again, agency and autonomy, all of those uh, were hard to develop and sort of swim in because we didn't feel psychologically safe or physically safe. Right. And so um, I think a lot of us were looking for answers and trying to you know, I, I was getting interviewed by newspapers like, "Hey, you know, you're supposed to be an expert in fun. How does someone have fun around the house? Well, if it's contrived and they're, you know you're kind of doing it for the sake of because someone's telling me that I, I need to have fun, you know, to pass the time until um, I feel safe again, that that's you know, oftentimes referred to as forced fun, right? Which we know isn't fun at all because it's not it's not you." Um, you know expressing yourself expressing your interest what brings you true pleasure and so but there were opportunities if you were mindful of that of like okay well what can I do in this space and time that makes sense and that I'm connected to and um for me you know it was finding uh old opportunities for hobbies long lost so um I picked up my guitar again you know and started enjoying nice. that and then it was really connecting with my children so um you know, I think there was that sense of duty first going in because, the, you know, the kids were home and we had to, you know, figure out virtual schools. So and now we're not only parents, but we're also, uh, teachers. And so, you know, all of the, yes. the folly of transactional analysis, right? Like really not having time to enjoy this sort of childlike state and, uh, you know, engage with play, but really feeling like the protector of these two folks that relied on us. Um, and sort of succumbing to that and going, you know what, I still have agency over a certain amount of both of our times where we can co-create these playful experiences and relinquish, you know, the burdens of, of feeling like I have to put on a show. And that really helped because again, you know, it's sort of going back to basics, right? Yeah. I got yeah. these early wins. Like, wait a second, this isn't as bad as it's being made out to do. And then, so in the book, I, um, uh, have this thing called the play model, you know, all, most psychologists are familiar with four quadrant models. And so, um, you know, it's nothing too sophisticated, but it's really a way to look um, at, uh, you know, critically looking at how you're spending your time. And I also found that doom scrolling consistently with messages that were repeating itself because there was no new, new news about the pandemic, right? It was really just immersing myself in the same news um, over and over again. Wasn't helpful, so that was another way. You know, a lot of times um, finding more joy and delight is really figuring out how to subtract the things that are sucking joy and delight out of your life. Yeah, right. And so um, that was an interesting lesson there too. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I guess we so, call it doom scrolling, but you know, I figured out I was doing too much of it. Call you it know? oh,
0: what? Oh, doom scrolling. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, really. Uh, there are a lot of temptations in that direction right now. Yeah. Um, Well, I'm aware one psychologist talking to another psychologist, and you're being sure to uh, put in the academic justifications and so on, but I want to let listeners and viewers know that your book is just packed with wonderfully creative ideas for how to get fun into your life, and um, so I rank the book very highly on that, and I'm glad that there are uh, the, the, nug- the the studies mentioned and so on, and and the academic discipline behind it, but uh, but you're a fun guy, and you've been drawn to some really f- crazy fun people. You mm-hmm. uh, you're tracking uh, not only psychology, but you're also tracking uh, uh, c- cultural figures, comedians, etc., and uh, uh, performers, musicians. Uh, all, all of, and, and you find nuggets in uh, unexpected places. And so I think I mentioned before we turned on the recorder that I'm going to hang on to your book and use it as a resource for myself to just kind of dive into every now and then leaf through and uh, find something that turns me on and say, Oh yeah, this, this, this looks good. I could do this. So um so congratulations! I, I think your book really so succeeds. As a matter of fact, you told a story that I really loved about Mark Sutherland and the bucket list for his dog. Yeah, take us through that if you will.
2: Yeah, definitely. Mark's a friend that I met uh, in Manhattan Beach. Uh, my wife and I, I met met in Manhattan Beach, and so I used to uh, hang
0: out there all the time. I loved Manhattan Beach, and actually. I uh, had an apartment for a while in Redondo Beach. Oh, very nice. Yeah, yeah, I'm
2: actually getting to go back to the South Bay next week. So I'm very uh, excited. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Mark's a friend. And, uh, you know, actually, it's <laughs> interesting enough, you know, a dog park is a lot like a, a comedy show, right? Like, um, you go there and everyone has a common interest. And especially in Manhattan Beach, I mean, we were from all walks of life. Um, at the time I was at an early stage startup and could barely afford my apartment. Um, you know, and then obviously in Manhattan beach, you know, you're sitting there right there with a high net worth individual and everyone's just having fun and enjoying, you know, these mammals play with each other because there's nothing greater than that. Right. So anyways, that's how I met Mark. Um, we kept in touch and um, uh, Mark loves whippets. He had a couple of whippets, one passed away from cancer Um, And his other whippet, Abby um, was starting to uh, look like she was going that way as well. And so what Mark devised, which is kind of in line, you know, with the principles in the fun habit was if, um, you know, Abby is close to, you know, coming to her end, I want to have as much fun with this, this individual that I love. um, And so why not put together, you know, a bunch of things that we can do. Um, but the magic of Mark's story, and it's going to become a, a documentary. He's calling it a dogumentary because that's oh, what he Oh, great. Yeah,
0: that's, that's um,
1: great.
2: The, so he's, uh, it's Abby's list to give him a bit of a plug. Um, but he put together all these sort of fun things that would be interesting for a dog. Obviously, he had to get creative, right, because he couldn't talk to her. But, you know, like uh, I think one of the more fanciful ones was uh, peeing on the, the biggest redwood you know, in America or whatever it was. (laughs) Um, So he devised all these cool things that they could do together. But the amazing thing is, um, was when they started to enjoy these activities together, uh, his dog, uh, the vitality returned to Abby. And all of a sudden what was meant to be, you know, a few month journey turned into a couple of years of just amazing experiences because, Um, They were really doing this, you know, fun stuff together. And so, you know, that tends, that's not rooted in science, but I think over and over again, you hear of, um, you know, people taking charge of really trying to connect with something bigger than themselves, which certainly Mark did, right? Like, you know, this wasn't for him. This was really to help his dog. I mean, ultimately I think he reaped the benefits But because his integrity was there and his intentions were true, um, you know, this this communal experience of joy, you know, lifted them both up. And, um, yeah, it's just an amazing story. And
0: now is this already a documentary or it's going to be a documentary?
2: Uh, I believe he's finishing editing now. Yeah.
0: Because I would love to see it once. If you can remember to let me know how I find it when it comes out, I would love that.
2: Uh, I know he's on uh he he's chronicling chronicles the development on Facebook so I'll make sure to um, send you the link after afterwards
0: okay. yeah great great and uh yeah I was struck by the way that he you know sort of put himself into his dog's frame of reference and okay what would really bring the dog joy what would be really fun and he carved time out of his life to go places and do things that He might not have otherwise done, but then in the process had fun himself.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I really, I really love that anecdote. And again, I'll let our our viewers and listeners know that this book is just filled (laughs) with delightful anecdotes like that. And so, um, uh, which makes it a fun book to read (laughs) about fun. It's interesting that the title is The Fun Habit. And of course, that has a message in it, right? The yeah, habit.
2: <laughs> I think you know. At the end of the day, it's really that it does need to become habitual, you know, and that um, you know, taking ownership over that. That it's not, you, you, you know, part of the manifestation of that. Because you know, book titles are always hard. Um, was that you know again in the Western world the what I uncovered, you know, that we have some of the least amount of paid leave, you know, in the developed country. And even that it's gotten so bad in the last decade that, you know, major fortune 500 companies have to incentivize people because they're smart enough to know that people that don't take vacations ultimately burn out. So it's not necessarily even benevolent that people, you know, that these corporations are encouraging people to take vacations. They know if they don't, they'll lose them. Um, this book was written before the great resignation but certainly I think we're seeing that you know come to fruition that you know just these burdens of the fact that we don't take leisure seriously and so um, what's you know the underpinnings of making it a habit is that you do habitually need um, to uh, create moments of delight joy leisure um, you know I the The term self care right now is getting a little bit overused, and and you know in different contexts. So I tend not to use it, but self care applies here, right? If you yeah. if everything is sort of external, you know, rewards um, of money or you know a sense of duty, um, it, if all of those things are sort of taken from you and you're not finding ways to renew yourself, um, then you're gonna break. And so you know, not creating a fun habit um, you know, ends up being to your own detriment. I think uh, in the chapter three, I talk about, uh, you know, it kind of saved my own life, but just through complete serendipity, um, during my practicum as a doctoral student, I saw it play out with physicians, you know, because physicians really, here's a very, uh, you know, a profession that, that has to be done. It, you know, it's, I have such, um, I'm struggling with the word but uh, you know admiration for physicians and uh, it really does require a lot of sacrifice. but it's also there's a crisis right now, right? because there if you look at uh, occupation as a category, they're always in the top five with regards to burnout. And so um, you know we have we have case after case of showing if people don't have a habitual practice of finding joy and delight in their life that really bad, negative life outcomes happen. Uh, Another person that studied this really well is uh, um, uh, Jeffrey Pfeiffer uh, uh, out of Stanford. He wrote that book, Dying for a Paycheck. And the whole book is about, you know, uh, about this topic.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm not familiar with that book. But uh, the title says a lot. (laughs) Tells you the story right there. You've got a chapter on friends are weird. (laughs) <laughs> and that's, that's a very provocative title.
2: Yeah. I stole that from Bill Murray. So Bill Murray just, uh-huh. uh, you know, it, it, the, the quote is, um, uh, you know, it's just, it's interesting, right? Cause you, there's 7 billion people in the world and we kind of, you know, decide, you know, whether it's due to proximity or, you know, uh, familiarity or you know like the dog park because we both have dogs and you're like you and I are going to be friends now and so it's just a weird concept but what we do know um, you know whether you're an extrovert or an introvert that pro-social behavior and the glue of that is having fun together um, is again a prophylactic that really you know, depending on what study you believe, um, ha, you know, is, um, as meaningful as stopping smoking or walking your 10,000 steps. Um, because we certainly see a high correlation, um, of the trait of loneliness and, um, poor health health outcomes. Yeah. And so, you know, it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to have a group of 20 folks, but if you find that you're not enjoying fun, with anyone for long periods of time, you know, going back to what we learned about the pandemic and, um, you know, especially school age children and some of the, you know, things that they're still, you know, trying to overcome, um, really poor things can happen. And so, uh, you know, that chapter is just an ode to the fact that, you um, that you need to prioritize, you know, having fun uh, with friends. And a lot of times that means that, you know, finding interesting opportunities. Right. So, uh, you know, taking back ownership of something like your uh, work break. So you don't necessarily if you're not finding those types of friendships at work, that's okay. You know, work's meant to get work done but maybe you have a, you know, a true friend that's down the block and, you know, just take that extra five minutes to go meet up with them so that you have that one hour of renewal, um, you know, between the two halves of your work. And again, these aren't profound ideas, right? But it's, if someone doesn't seed you with them, you forget that that's a possibility, right? Because we do tend to be uh, creatures of convenience, right? Well, I don't know, it's just so easy to get, you know, lunch from my cafeteria, like really, because they're, you could get, you know, it's just five minutes away, and then you would yeah. really enjoy the company of a friend.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that um, one of your suggestions in that chapter was to figure out, well, what's something fun that you could do together with somebody? You know, I'm in this, this age demographic now, I'm in my 80s, and it's I'm finding it's harder to make friends. And I think that's true for lots of people. So you'll, you'll like this though, I've got a neighbor, I live on a, we live on a court okay. and uh, we're, we're not terribly interactive. It's, uh, uh, I know other people who live in cooler neighborhoods where there's a lot of uh, stronger sense of community. Um, but one of our neighbors across the court uh, is uh, just turned 81 and decided she wants to have a birthday party in the court. And so another person in the court has agreed to to cook a lot of food, and after I get off of this conversation here, I'm going to go join that group, and you know we'll see what happens. But here's a person just turned 81, and she's reaching out to the people around her to make something happen that she th- that will be fun for her and meaningful for her. So,
2: no, uh, and I think that's so important. Um, yeah. I don't, I didn't bring it up in the book, but um, that was something that we did as well during the pandemic. I think when we first got here, um, a lot of people in the South, uh, you know, find friendship through faith and we weren't associated with the church when we first got here. And so, um, you know, a lot of people had already cohorted in that fashion, but the pandemic presented an opportunity because churches were closed for us to do exactly what you just described. And so, you know, sometimes it does take that extra step. Like, you know, we ended up getting catering, you know, like it was a small investment, um, but it was a honeypot to invite people over. Uh, And, you know, when you put yourself out there, the gratitude is, you know, always a multiplier. So everyone enjoyed each other's company. Um, And then as long as it went well, right. Cause I don't want to, Candy coat it, you know, sometimes it it will end in disaster, which is fine, right? Then you you try it again. But most of the times it, it, it works out. In this case, it certainly did. And now, because everyone enjoyed the experience, it becomes contagious, right? And like, we obviously have to do this again. And now we have friends we never would have if we hadn't made that choice. Um, you know, and certainly, as you know, I have a bias towards making those types of choices. Like, yeah, you know, okay. let's, let's see it. I, I think another one, this one I do write in the book um, and mainly because you invited it in is, um, you know, there are all sorts of websites where you can um, find groups with similar interests. So one that's commonly used is meetup.com. And so even if you're, in you know, introverted, Um, you go to a group where you already have this natural comfort because you know, everyone there is going to be, um, you know, have an affinity for what you like. And so you don't have to force the conversation. You can start because the prime was already there. Right. And so uh, my, my dad's 80 and he's finding it through music. He, um, he's picked the tuba back up and because the tuba is, (laughs) is an instrument, um, you know, that's harder to find. He's found that he's been invited to all these things. He's playing at the UC Davis symphony again, because the symphony needs a a tuba player, Yeah,
0: Yeah, I have a a son-in-law who took up the tuba for that very reason. Uh, He he realized that bands always need a tuba. (laughs) There's always (laughs) an opportunity to play the tuba if if you're looking for it. Yeah. Um, Well, you know, we're in a particularly challenging time. I don't want to Cast too big a pall on our conversation here, but with what's going on in the Ukraine, plus it's not at all clear that the pandemic is gone. Uh, we're we're still concerned about that. Um, so it's really easy to get pulled down, and, and to have you know if you have any tendency towards depression or uh, what's what's your advice? for folks during this particularly challenging time?
2: Yeah, so this one was uh, an interesting insight that there were a few that happened during the creation of the book, because for the most part, the manuscript had been written, right? as a uh, initially written as a very academic text. Uh-huh. Um, and then, as you've seen, you know it, uh, it was rewritten in a much better way with some good coaches and, yeah. and, and a great collaborator. Yeah. Um, but I fell apart during the pandemic because I fell victim to the weight of um, the Black Lives Matter movement. I, uh, it just uh, you know, I tend to be an empath, and the weight of all of that finally kind of broke me because I was trying to hold everything together, and so it led to the only chapter that was written um, y- uh, f- from a fresh perspective, you know, cause again, all the other chapters had been basically created, you know, before the pandemic and then okay. pandemic tested. And what I found is that fun can be used in a similar fashion, even in times that we exist in right now, right? Because it can connect you to a cause as long as you don't let it drown you. Um, so if you are finding that you are, you know, um, you're finding despair in this moment, what are opportunities where you can contribute, but that still give you back that opportunity for pro-social behavior or for um, you know, some sort of enjoyment? Like, so for instance, right now I'm, uh, because I like to build things, I'm investigating how I can contribute to Habitat for Humanity. And so, the reframe there though that's important is that as long as you are providing some way of making the world better that tends to relinquish you know this feeling because there's going to be pain there's the, the world's always going to be in discomfort right there you know right now we're very involved in, obviously in what's happening in ukraine um but there's always a war going around somewhere in the world, especially here in the United States, you know, uh, things like social uh, issues, poverty, like none of that is going to uh, um, is relinquish, right? And so um, being able to contribute and know that you're moving, um, advancing something forward tends to be a prophylactic against that. And so when you're coming up with fun things to do, Making sure that you also index, um, you know, those opportunities for where you can find a pleasurable way to contribute, and then know that you are doing something better, that you are making a difference, that you're not contributing to um, societal ills, but quite the contrary, um, it has kind of a host of different benefits. Right? One, it's going to take your mind off of it. Two if you do start to sort of feel the weight or the burden of all of society's problems, you can you can savor in the moment that you are making the world a better place. Um, and then three, it does connect you with change makers. And so knowing that um, if you do have a problem, you know, a lot of these folks that are engaged in uh, social contribution tend to have similar DNA and they can lift you up. Um, and so, all, you know, it just has a whole host of benefits.
0: Okay. Well, I really appreciate that. I think we're about out of our time here. Is there anything else that you'd like to get in? No, I think, uh,
2: you know, to surmise, like, and to your point, I did probably go a little bit overboard on, uh, you know, on the (laughs) underpinnings of the research, just because I I felt like that would be important for your audience. But, you know, the the main ideas um, in the book is, you know, as you mentioned, has a host of of strategies and tactics, but this idea that, you know, just making small changes and making fun a habitual part of your life will really have, you know, create this upward spiral um, and and make you realize that, you know, even in the downtime that, uh, you know, fun times are ahead. And so we only have a limited amount of time that we're here on earth. And so, you know, uh, what a better time to sort of regain that autonomy and agency that you have to create those delightful moments for yourself.
0: I like the upward spiral. I like the image. Of that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Dr. Uh, Mike Rucker, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Crap Radio.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure.
0: Well I have to say it was fun speaking with my guest, Dr. Fun, er I mean Mark Rucker, PhD, author of the 2023 book, The Fun Habit, How the Disciplined Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. Wait, a 2023 book? Is he funning me? No, it's true but it's definitely the first time I've had a guest with a book announcement quite so far in the future. This one is coming out in January of 2023, and we are in early April 2022. It's not a practical joke, but Mike shares a good one in his book. The book was written during the long social isolation of COVID-19. How were he and his wife going to liven things up while being so housebound? I didn't mark the passage in the book, but here's how I remember it. Mike and his wife, who already had two kids, sent out a happy birth announcement to far-flung family and friends. Then they had the joy or fun of receiving a flood of congratulatory phone calls and letters. Of course, there was no impending baby on the way, but they definitely got bombarded with a ton of love and happy wishes. Letting folks know that it was really just a way to re-spark their connections and get caught up gave everyone a boost of oxytocin. In our Zoom interview, I got to experience two sides of Mike. He was being very earnest and serious initially, and I realized he was talking as one psychologist to another. He really wanted me and my audience to respect the work he had put into the book as well as its scientific foundations. You will have heard me comment to him about this and the contrast to all the fun anecdotes and adventures and tips for creating fun and joy in the book. So I would say both are true about Mike and this book. On the one hand, we have the happy invitation of the main title, the fun habit. Oh boy. And on the other hand, the subtitle of the book emphasizing disciplined pursuit. In other words, he's not a frivolous guy. So in fact, I'm happy to recommend this book to you because these two facets are combined so well. There are references to recent research to satisfy the most academically inclined of you, and plenty of stories and ideas about how to get fun in your life, which is certainly something most of us can use at this time. He even cites research documenting our current situation of being fun-deprived. Personally, I try not to hang on to too many books, but I'm going to keep this one as a reference book to spark my own imagination when I find myself feeling stale or stalled out. Thank you, Dr. Mike Rucker, for being my guest and the gift of your inspiring and resource-laden book.
1: Hi, Dr. Dave. This is Ben Tye calling from London in England. I've been listening to Shrinkwrap Radio now for over a year. And it's been such an entertaining learning experience for me that I was recently compelled to become a regular donor. I really appreciate the effort you put into each episode and collectively the whole catalogue is such a rich and valuable resource. I've been working as a business consultant now for over 20 years and next year marks the start of a second career for me as I begin the foundation year of a diploma in transpersonal psychotherapy and counselling at the CCPE here in London. Listening to the podcast has been a tremendous grounding in the field and to so many interesting and valuable books and online resources written or presented by your guests. I do hope that other listeners will also make a one-off or regular donation so that we can continue to enjoy the program for many years to come. Anyway, thank you, Dr. Dave. Keep up the great work and thanks again.
0: Thank you, Ben Tai, there in London, England. I'm glad these podcasts have helped to spark and support your career move. I hope others of you out there will feel inspired by Ben's support and to follow his example by becoming regular donors yourselves. So, once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to today's guest, Mike Rucker, Ph.D., for sharing about his forthcoming 2023 book, The Fun Habit. Next week's guest comes highly recommended by longtime listener Dan Gross. Lori Urey is her name. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. I'll find out next week. And she's a licensed independent clinical social worker and certified bioenergetic therapist, bringing over 25 years of experience with bioenergetic analysis to her psychotherapy practice. So until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves and others. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make you dangerous.